you electrify the plant. And then when the insect feeds on the plant, and that insect happens to be wired up and in the system, when it feeds, it inserts its stylets into the plant and this completes a circuit. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Astri Wayadande, a professor from Oklahoma State University from a department previously known as the National Institute for Microbial Forensics and Food and Agricultural Biosecurity, also known as NIMFAB. According to ResearchGate, Dr. Wayadande has over 60 research items, over 890 citations, and almost 4,000 reads of her works. Dr. Wayadande is well known for her work in electropenetography, where insects are used to complete a circuit to better understand some of their feeding behavior. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great. <laughs> You're doing all right during all this uh, stay at home and... Uh... Well, you know, I don't like it and um, I'm going crazy like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. But I'm trying to um, look at the, on the bright side, if there is one. And, um, and basically it, it, it means that even though I'm working all the time, I get a little bit more rest and I can choose, you know, some downtime if I need it because I'm usually at home. Um, and so my garden is there. So I've been like planting flowers and, you know, and usually I don't have time to do that until after finals is over. Yeah. For the first time in, oh gosh, 25 years, I have a beautiful yard. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Astri Wayadande, you did your uh, bachelor's in entomology mm -hmm. first at in the University of California, uh, in Davis, Davis, California, so UC Davis. And so you are already doing your undergraduate de uh, degree in entomology when you started. So you started in entomology kind of early. What kind of inspired you to study entomology? I was a floundering pre-vet who didn't like it. And um, I was, yeah, they were going to kick me out of school. And I was one of these kids who had to have an epiphany or I was going to be out of there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, yeah. yeah, I was really very fortunate because um, I ran into a, a friend of mine and he was, he was an entomology major and I would never even heard of entomology. And and he was, you know, saying how much he really liked it. And so I decided, well, I'll just take a class. So I guess my junior year, I, I, I took an introductory class in entomology. And it was like, ba -bang! <laughs> I was a zoo major at the time. And it was, it was a huge major, you know, one of those weed out things. And yeah. I was getting ready to have to do horrible things to little crabs or big crabs, I guess. And I... I didn't want to do it. And, and when I took uh, Harry Kaya's intro to entomology course, I like, I fell in love with it. I said, Oh my gosh, all the things I'm interested in doing, I don't feel so bad about doing it with insects. <laughs> and yeah, later there's issues and stuff, but, but, uh, but I, I absolutely, um, I loved it. I was in a community of other undergraduates and a few graduate students. And it was the perfect environment for a student like me because that was the beginning of my recovery and uh, change in trajectory to something that led to academic and professional success. We certainly both work with brilliant people who've been brilliant their whole lives and careers, but then there's a subset of people like me 
who um, did not start out that way. And it was um, by luck, by chance, by serendipity that we run into a few key people who offered some words of encouragement, who um, said, hey, you can do this. And, um, and, or things like, hey, look what I did. If I can do it, anybody can. And, uh, and that's what I needed at that time. And it was, you know, just, uh, just a few words of encouragement because UC Davis is a, you know, pretty big weed out school. Mm. And um, yeah, I was going to crash and burn. Oh, and I, I, no, I tell this story to my students because, you know, they come to me and they're upset. Oh, I'm not going to get into that school or whatever. Like, you know what? That's okay. <laughs> I, mean, it, I don't want to poo poo, you know, people's professional dreams, and, but there is this life outside of professional school. And if you don't make it, it could very well be because, wow, maybe something better is waiting for you. And yeah. you just don't think about uh, those other choices because you're not, you're not faced with it. And I've seen it over and over again. Yeah. yeah. You know, mediocre students, you know, I was a mediocre student and, and luckily I was, I was given an opportunity to claw my way back and, get up to that close to a 3.0 so that I could qualify to go to graduate school. I didn't quite make it. I had to get in on probation. Hmm. But once I got in, it was like, Hey, just get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> that was your opportunity to flourish right there. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm always looking for students who maybe they're struggling, but you know, they have that drive or that, you know, special something about them. And you know what? you can do this if, if it's something that is really, really important to you and it's driving you, who am I to, to, to hold you back because you're not a, a A or B, even a B student, you know, some people are right on the cusp. And so, yeah. okay, what do you need? Da, da, da. And then get out of their way and watch yeah. them. Grow. It's amazing. That's, that's, that's kind of really nice to, uh, to hear because I think, um, you know, for anyone who's considering graduate school, you know, it is very different than undergraduate degree. I mean, like you said, I, I also came from one of those institutions that, uh, especially those earlier year courses, the six or 700 students, I mean, it's a weed out course, you know, whereas as a graduate student, you know, your advisor is trying to mentor you to become the best that you can, or at least yes. to achieve your particular goals. So it's very different. Very um, much. And so going now, so who were some of your inspirations then? So you mentioned, you know, you had that switch. Who were some of your early inspirations? Well, okay. So to, uh, to get me into entomology, it was really serendipity. Dr. Harry Kaya was at UC Davis and he, he well, he was an nematologist. He's retired now. But he didn't usually teach the undergraduate, you know, general entomology course. But anyway, so Harry taught that one, one quarter and I was lucky to be in his class with a whole room full of like entomology wannabes that these people became my peers for the next several years. So it was certainly Harry Kaya because I learned so much from him. Um, but then there was a graduate student that I worked in in, uh, in his lab. This was um, Dr. Jeff Burnett's lab and there was this graduate student whose name was Tim Dennehy. And Tim is now like this big shot IPM guy He's working for private companies now, but he was at University of Arizona and at Cornell for a while. 
but he could see that I was struggling and I was his dishwasher. I washed his dishes <laughs> <laughs> and he sat me down and he said, you know, you think that you're here because UC is there to teach, but they're not, they're, they're in the research business. And um, you have to figure out a way to, um, to set yourself apart and to survive and everything. And said, you know, you just, you can do this, you just have to persevere. And so if it wasn't for Tim Dennehy, I, I'm quite sure I would not be sitting here today because he, he picked me up when I was really feeling low and and said yeah you can do this and and so it's like okay <clears throat> and so you know those two people you know when i was at davis and then of course my two graduate advisors um elaine backus at university of missouri she was awesome she taught me so much about research and about what i do now epg mm-hmm. and about behavior and then my doctoral advisor skip nault what an amazing man <laughs> Um, ecologist, uh, vector biologist, um, just all around inquisitive and um, exciting research scientist. That's the, uh, yeah, exciting. Wow. I mean, That's co- I, I wanted to go to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good feeling. Uh, so after your undergrad, so you already kind of mentioned some of your graduate advisors. So you did your uh, master's in entomology, University of Missouri. Mm-hmm. And right after that, you went on to your PhD. What kind of, what made you decide to go to your PhD? <laughs> I wanted to be just like Skip Nault. Yes. All right. And I met him at um, a meeting. Uh, oh gosh, it was back in 1986. And I was just like, oh my gosh. I mean, he must have been in his early 50s, and he was just so enthusiastic about leafhoppers and the, and the pathogens that they transmitted, and I, I just like, I want to be like him. Do you ever have that, where you, oh, you see someone? Oh, yeah. And so it became a singular obsession. I finished up my graduate work, and I applied. I only applied to one school for my doctorate. Only one person I wanted to work with, and that was uh, Skip Nault. And wow. He yeah. took me as a student, and um, yeah, it was rocky, and yeah, things didn't work out. But then a miracle happened, and then I ha- ended up having the best project of all times. <laughs> oh, so wow. It worked out really well. We're still yeah. pals, you know, today. So, um, oh, nice. Yeah, it is. What did you? So, what was the main, you know, your main research for your PhD? Um, I was a, a vector entomologist in training, so I worked with leafhoppers that transmitted um, plant pathogenic uh, bacteria, so mostly spiroplasmas, but there were a few uh, viruses. So, I had like a two a two type of system. I was working with uh, feeding behavior of leaf proper vectors, and then also some really cool and interesting uh, transmission biology of a semi-persistently transmitted uh, corn virus, maize chlorotic dwarf virus. All so right. I got to tease out some of the behavioral aspects of MCDV inoculation using electro uh, penetration graph. Wow. And we're, cool. we're going to get into some of these details of what some of this stuff means when we discuss the paper. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, just in general, you know, for a lot of people, some people listening might not be aware that 
plants can also have viruses and pathogens and insects can mm -hmm. vector those viruses and pathogens just like mosquitoes vector, you know, viruses for us. And this can be uh, very detrimental. That's where you have uh, very critical issues when it comes to pest management because it's one thing if you just have a certain percentage of leaf hoppers or aphids or some other key pest in your crop, they can control with an insecticide. But if they are persistently or, you know, have been, you know, vectoring some kind of a virus, I mean, you can lose your entire crop. You know, you could treat the aphids, but if your plants all have that virus, you might lose everything. It's too late at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, let's see. So now... Uh, you are Associate Professor and Interim Director of the National Institute for Microbial Forensics and Food and Agricultural Biosecurity, also abbreviated as NIMFAB. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, um, I'll have to correct you. It's a little bit um, old information. So, oh, okay. Um, is it okay if I update you? Please. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So um, I was promoted to full. So that was, yeah. Oh, congrats. Finally. Okay, nice. You see all this gray hair? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that happened. And then also um, I was, I was interim director. We've hired a new director. This is Kitty Cardwell. Uh, she came to us from USDA and very recently we had a name change and we are now instead of NIMFAB, we are now known as the IMBF, Institute for Microbial Forensics and Biosecurity. And, and so the mission is the same, um, understanding relationships between plant pathogens, uh, their vectors, understanding microbial forensics. And then of course we have a, um, a mission uh, towards um, agricultural biosecurity, understanding all the key players, you know, uh, training for, for law enforcement, uh, research support, advanced diagnostics, things like that. So the mission hasn't changed, but the, the name uh, of the Institute has. So what is microbial forensics? Ooh, well, okay. So you know what forensics is? Texas yes. A&M is famous yeah. for its forensics program. Well, um, in the traditional sense, forensics is um, trying to uh, trace back or trying to understand uh, by looking at the evidence who may have um, committed a crime and uh, attribution uh, for, um, for that perpetrator. So microbial forensics is just like that, except that instead of regular physical evidence that we use um, that might be admittable in a, in a court of law, um, we're using microbial uh, footprints, if you will, or um, traces. So you know what a microbial profile is, right? We have lots of different microbes and they're present in different quantities, uh, different species. There might be something that's very rare, but very um, characteristic of a particular site or of a particular insect. Um, we have our own microbial footprint or in our gut microbes, for example. Mm -hmm. And so by using um, microbial forensics, we can trace back um, a, uh, oh, a footprint of microbes that might be at, a, at the scene of a crime or at a particular, um, in a, say for example, in a food safety um, event where you're trying to figure out where um, a food safety microbe uh, might have come from. Uh, we can trace back to a source, things like this. We use all this kind of evidence to help us to understand what might have happened when it might have happened, and even 
perhaps how something might have happened. But it's wow. very complicated. But they're yeah. learning more and more about um, about bacteria, um, also about viruses and viral footprints. You know, we have microbiomes, we have viromes that have very characteristic um, uh, constituents uh, that make up those communities. So. So, so is this methodology currently commonly practiced or is it still in research phase? I would say both. Um, so the, the term microbial forensics was co coined by a plant pathologist who was in the FBI, Bruce Bedoli. Huh. Um, although there are other people who contributed, I think, I think Bruce was probably the first one to come up with a term. Um, and he recognized that there's lots of bacteria in the world, and that we now are capable of detecting those, those bacteria. With the advent of sequencing, we can find out just tons of information about who is on my cell phone, for example, okay? Mm. Or um, on this pen, if it was left behind um, as some evidence, you could actually do a swipe, swap. extract the DNA or RNA if you wanted to, and then figure out what microbes are there. I mean, this is a very simple, simplistic explanation, but if you could match you know, the stuff on this pin to say the microbes on my hand, you might mm -hmm. be able to get a fingerprint match. Yeah. Like, oh, you've got 18 species, those same 18 species, including a very rare one that never occurs outside of the state of Ontario. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you have a match or something like yeah. that. But the thing is, is with microbial forensics, that the the evidence has to be so stringent that it will hold up in a court of law, mm. and that's really what we do. And and that is to understand um, what might be happening and what evidence might look like, or what we have to do in terms of diagnostics and evidence collecting, so that it would hold up it would be so stringent that it would hold up in a court of law. And that's the difference between, you know, just discovering what's, you know, on a tomato or on my cell phone and then getting evidence that can withstand the strict set of Standard, guidelines yeah. required to either convict or to um, show that someone is innocent um, of a particular crime. It has to be really, really good and above um, question. Yeah, which kind of which when it comes to molecular work, it it seems like is already uh, very difficult uh, as is. So now combine, you know, bacterial like a, a profile or a signature and relative mm -hmm. concentrations, and then make sure that you know you don't have a false positive or a false negative in all that. And <laughs> that's right. And so that, that's the research part of it is to understand you know how microbes interact, you know how they survive on surfaces, um, the, the diagnostics, you know, part of it, you know. Presence or absence is the diff is different than um, uh, the strict guidelines required uh, for for court, and and so um, so we do research. We understand we um, understand interactions. We work towards uh, developing um, useful tools um, and validation of those tools. That's another. Part part of microbial forensics is to validate the tools so that they can be used the same way over and over again and that would have the same high level of um, identification or uh, description. Yeah. So. Now there's 
there was a number of uh, people doing some very interesting and neat research in that department. Do you mind like highlighting some of the types of projects that are being do done there? Sure, I'd love to talk about my colleagues. Um, we're, we're a rather um, smallish um, department um, compared to Texas A&M, but um, small but mighty, I suppose. <laughs> So, for example, the two other research scientists that, that I work with are Dr. Francisco Ochoa Corona. He is uh, an advanced diagnostic specialist. He develops tools that we work with. And so um, um, he's doing research right now on uh, Rose Rosette disease mm -hmm. um, oh, that yeah. is impacting your state um, as yeah. much as ours and around, around the nation. So he's trying to understand the relationship between uh, the virus, um, understanding the plant virome, um, and understanding um, how movement is happening. He's working a little bit with the vector and um, doing some really great stuff with um, new tools, movable PCR, so that you can you know, diagnose things in the field, and developing new, uh, he calls them user-friendly diagnostic tools. You know, you know, you've done PCR before. It's like, yeah. you have to take your sample, go up into the lab. You have to have all these chemicals and everything. But what if you could do something really fast and easy that the grower could do, you know, yeah. on, on his ranch or farm? And that's what he's interested in doing is bringing advanced diagnostics, you know, straight to the grower or the rancher or wherever the, the need is. So that'd be pretty. That'd be pretty remarkable because right now, you know, a grower would have to submit a sample to a plant diagnostic lab. Mm -hmm. They need to process that. That can usually take two or three days for them to do and get back to the grower. But if the grower has something in hand, yeah. uh, that can make a huge difference in turnaround, in treatment, so on and so forth. Yeah, so that's, yeah, he's working towards that. So it would make it um, a little bit easier. I mean, you stop and think about it. We've, uh, we've already placed a lot of useful tools in the hands of our growers and our ranchers. And so this is just sort of the next step, you know, a handheld, you know, like a tricorder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so there's that, that uh, bit of work. Then uh, um, there's some food, very interesting food safety research done by Dr. Lee Ma. Um, and one of her cool projects is coming up with, it's called cold plasma um, sterilization of, of surfaces. And so she's a food safety um, expert and it's not enough just to understand the microbes. She wants to get rid of them and make it uh, possible for processors or even home owners to have a quick sterilization uh, technique to get, to get rid of um, harmful bacteria. And so she's working on cold plasma applications um, of food safety. Now as a you know, research scientist, as a graduate student mentor, um, you know, what are some of the skills or life values that you think have been most important to get kind of where you are today? Learn how to make your own tools. I'm a tool maker because I'm poor. Actually, I'm not, but um, I, I grew up in labs that didn't have a lot of money. I had to make my own tools. So I can make, any, I can make anything out of parafilm, glass pipettes, and uh, tape. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, but um, I've learned to get along. I learned. Lear, is this a skill? Creativity is that a skill? Yeah, or, or like a resourcefulness. Resourcefulness. I like that. Yeah, better. that's a better one. So resourcefulness. 
Um, the other thing that I think was really important, and this is a, an attribute, I guess, and that is insane curiosity. Mm. Like ridiculous. Like, how does that work? Or why does that happen? If, you're, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you start thinking about, you know, something that you're interested in, like, oh, I wonder, why did that hopper, you know, perform that activity and not this one? And it gets to bothering you and they, oh, I've got to figure it out. So then you design an experiment. You ask the question, you know, you conduct the experiment. Like, oh, okay, now I get it. And then you move on. I mean, I don't know. That's, for me, you know, that was it. Um, writing, of course, is a skill, which I did not have. And I have um, fought very hard to become a better writer, but it was a skill and an ability that, I just did not have, and it held me back for a long time. And that's why I teach writing intensiveness in, in, my, in one of my classes, is I want students to have that skill, um, or at least the confidence to recognize that, hey, I'm not very good at that. I need to know more about it. So resourcefulness, curiosity, writing skills. Oh, and that, sorry, the gift for gab. <laughs> gift for gab, what is that? Uh, the gift to, to talk, blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. I don't need slides. I don't need a script. I don't need notes. I just need someone to tell me when to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and that has certainly been helpful uh, because you can communicate your, your ideas or, or have a discussion with people with ease. Well, I think that these are, are qualities that even if you don't have them, I mean, I, I tell my students, you're not going to believe this, but I used to be an, a, an insanely and painfully shy person. And they look at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I say, no, I had to practice. And, um, and so I think that that is a skill and it's something that you can learn. And even if you don't feel like, oh, I'll never be able to stand up and give a talk without notes or or, or whatever, well, I bet you can if you learn a few tricks and if you practice. And yeah. so that's one of the things I encourage my students to do is to learn to feel comfortable um, speaking in public or um, just talking about their interests. And so I, I, I think it's important. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. It's probably wanted something more technical, but. No, I think, no, I think that's exactly it. And I think writing is one that uh, I can relate to. I feel like I've improved a lot of my writing during my PhD, but still have a lot to learn. I, I still struggle and still find it very challenging. Um, but it's certainly, I mean, I feel like once you figure that out, that's that one missing key I feel like I currently have. If I can figure that out, that's really going to help me out a lot. Well, I'm waiting to figure it out too. And, and so it's a journey, Irfan, and you will find this out. I mean, there are some people who are naturally gifted writers and I'm so happy for them, but I'm not one of them. So it's, yeah. uh, I have to work at it and, you know, make myself. And, and so I think it's okay to admit that, yeah, maybe you're lacking in something, but you can also make up for it and work towards, you know, getting better. And mm -hmm. if you do that, you usually will. Yeah. You conduct research now that uses this EPG and you've been using this for a little while, right? And that stands for electro penetography, pen, pen, <laughs> penetography, <laughs> electro, electro penetrography, electro penetrography. Yes. 
Yes. Excellent. And that's, could you explain that in brief? Kind of what, how does that work? Um, yes, very simply. Okay, so electropanetrography, at least with plant feeding insects, this is the easiest system to explain with. Um, you have um, a plant, okay? And um, you have an insect that's feeding on the plant. Usually these are piercing, sucking insects, okay? So if you electrify the plant by putting a small amount of current into the soil or into the plant itself, you electrify the plant. And then when the insect feeds on the plant and that insect happens to be wired up and in the system, when it feeds, it inserts its stylets into the plant and this completes a circuit, an electrical circuit. And so electricity can flow up through the plant and then across through the stylets and then the insect then acts as a variable resistor. And so then the signal passes through the body of the insect and up through the wire and then back to the, the system and where the information is, is recorded on a computer. And the display is a waveform. Yeah, and it's pretty remarkable because depending on uh, how that insect or, or where precisely that stylet is feeding, uh, you can have slightly different resistance and a slightly different pattern as a result of the, the waveform. Absolutely. So um, you can get information um, about things like where the insect is, is, is probing, where the stylet tip is, um, where the, the actual liquid is going up. You get information um, about what activity is happening inside the insect. So you can measure things like the, the sucking pump. You can measure streaming potentials within the, the food and salivary canals. You can uh, measure when the stylet tips, are, for example, for an aphid, when it breaks into an epidermal cell, um, you can measure the break in the membrane potential of that cell. And that's a very, very important behavior um, uh, for acquisition and inoculation of certain kinds of viruses. Mm -hmm. So you can, it's that sensitive. So you get all this really cool information um, that is then very quantifiable. And so you can measure activities of, of a plant feeding insect. And then it turns out you can do the same thing with blood feeding insects. Yeah. So that gets us right into this paper, right? Which is, it was published in the journal of medical entomology in 2020. So this, this year and uh, entitled waveforms, uh, waveforms from stylet probing with a mosquito, 80s aegypti measured by ACDC electropenetrography, which I think I can reasonably now <laughs> yeah uh and uh so so why so why was this study kind of interesting or why is this different than what's been done well traditionally or in the past this is not the first epg study of mosquitoes it has been done in the past but using older systems that are not nearly as sensitive okay so this particular study is um unique because for the first time it's using modern equipment that's capable of detecting more than the older equipment was capable of detecting. And so you're getting a lot more information other than inserting the stylets into you know, a mammal um, and then taking the stylets out and then just straight ingestion. We were able to discern things like movement of the stylets down to a blood vessel uh, movement into the blood vessel and then ingestion. Um, that was very simple 
yeah, the appearance of blood is a pretty good indication. <laughs> <laughs> There's ingestion going on. So, and so y'all did this on, on human hands. And I love this. Anyone doing mosquito work, you know, I, I had a, a fellow graduate student back when I was doing my master's, we'd play squash together. And that was the time right after then he would say, I have to go feed my mosquitoes. You know, he was all sweaty. He knew that he'd, he'd be nice and delicious for them. And he would just roll up his sleeve and stick his arm in his mosquito cage to maintain his mosquito colony. Yeah. <laughs> I just found that <laughs> crazy. And, and so y'all used human hands here as well. So are you putting a small current in, in, in the person's hand or how does that work? Um, it was actually uh, quite simple. We found out that uh, um, if you hold the electrode in your hand, um, all you really need to do is have the mosquito complete the circuit. It, you don't feel any, you don't, in fact, you don't even have to apply any electricity. Our bodies generate enough um, electricity or current uh, to, to be detectable uh, by the system. Wow. And, and so um, you just have to be holding it. And when the mosquito pierces your skin, it completes the circuit. And then activities going on at the stylet hand interface as well as pumping activities inside the mosquito um, are, are picked up by the equipment. And some of the types of behaviors you're able to capture or, or quantify included surface salivation, stylet penetration to the outer skin, penetration of deeper tissues and location of blood vessels, active ingestion with engorgement. I mean, that's pretty remarkable that, because visually you would not be able to see any of that stuff, but using this technique, you can know specifically uh, what, what part of their feeding cycle they are in. And yeah. why is that, why would that be helpful or, or interesting for future work? Well, okay, for example, um, mosquitoes make really short bites, right? Um, mm -hmm. Evolutionarily, this is advantageous to them because they want to get in, suck, and get out before get out. they get squished. Swap. So, um, of course, what happens during a mosquito bite, um, they can transmit, you know, pathogens to whatever host they're feeding on. And that's what we're interested in disrupting. And then there's other things, you know, well, people are very sensitive to mosquito bites. So anything that'll, um, that could impact shortening the bite or keeping them from biting, keeping them from accessing blood, anything like that would be helpful and useful. So um, actually you can see these things, but it requires a pretty hefty video equipment and like mice and things like that. And um, you can the see- The ears of mice, I think you yes. all yeah, spoke about In there. In fact, yeah. that was a wonderful paper that I used as inspiration, if you will. I, I wonder if you could capture this, but on EPG, which is a lot easier to do than to get a poor mouse, strap it down, anesthetize it, you know, get the ear ready, get the mosquito in just the right spot and then film. With EPG, you just wire up the mosquito, which is very easy to do. Get her on there, hook her up, oh, da -da, give her your hand. And then if she's in the mood to, to, for a blood meal, boom, bada bing, bada boom, you're done in like 10, 15 minutes. Wow. And yeah, and then you can- It's like donating blood. It's like donating blood, incredible. Well, yes, yeah, you, you could put it that way. But but in terms of practical application, if you wanted to test things like, okay, um, I'm type A blood, all right, and I'm a mosquito magnet. I'm a self-disclosed um, mosquitoes like to bite me. I don't. What kind of person are you? Do they like you? 
Uh, you know, I think they, they like me a little bit less than my wife, but I don't know what I am. <laughs> well, it may not have anything to do with blood type. So let's say that, that you, you, you don't attract many mosquitoes. What's the difference between you and me other than, okay, you're a man and I'm a woman. Okay, there's probably other things. We have differences in our skin, our skin chemistries, our blood chemistry, whatever. There's a difference between people. There's variation in, in people. Some people um, actually will kill mosquitoes if they feed on them. There's something toxic about them. Oh, wow. So, you know, trying to understand what these factors might be would be a wonderful application for EPG. Okay, you've got a mosquito, it bites you, but it doesn't take a full blood meal. What's going on? Is it have trouble finding the, the vessels? Is it um, um, constantly um, in that searching mode? Does it ever find? No, it can't. Okay, so at some point it's detected by the host and out it goes. So there are differences in, in people or animals and if we understood what those were, we might be able to identify key factors that, that could be exploitable to, to, um, to develop, you know, better repellents or um, um, understand, hey, have you ever wondered if you ate garlic? Does that really help you repel mosquitoes? That's the, that's the next big experiment I want to try. It's like massively, you know, spaghetti with tons of garlic. And do I see a change in the way mosquitoes probe on my skin? Yeah. I mean, if, if we're having massive meals, uh, please let me know. I'll be, I'll be a part of that. If it just means I got to put my hand in with one female mosquito, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be something is if you fa detected something right. that just by consuming it, it was a regular food and, and it caused um, just a change in your attractiveness to mosquitoes. I mean, that, that could be, you know, something very useful. Yeah, because I mean, they use, I mean, they, they use not only like CO2 coming off of yes. you, but also odorants, heat and visual cues. That's so right. I mean, if you can alter get all of those on your side, then you can help repel them and reduce mosquito bites. So I mean, to me, those are the applications is to try to understand how to thwart biting. If you can reduce or uh, prevent, you know, biting or at least salivation when they're probing your skin you could reduce um, transmission of mosquito-borne, you know, pathogens. And ultimately that's the goal. Yeah. And that's, you know, about 20% of all, what is it? All infectious human diseases worldwide, you know, I'll quote is, is from mosquitoes or mosquito-borne viruses. And that's huge, right? Mosquitoes are a huge, probably one of the biggest killers, animal killers that we have on, on the earth. And, and yet we fear sharks and, you know, alligators more, but, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of one of the things, right, is, you know, uh, really knowing, uh, being able to quantify this through this technique really helps with uh, repellent or insecticide development. Because if you can develop something that even though a mosquito gets on you and will try to probe, but can't quite get into that tissue, so it's transmitting that virus, that would still be considered perhaps a successful kind of repellent or a successful insecticide. Yeah, what I'd like to do is, I mean, I've been working with um, um, insect vectors of plant pathogens for so long, and we really understand the acquisition and inoculation process. I don't think we understand it quite as well with um, uh, vectors of human and animal pathogens, simply because it's really hard to take samples out of a living organism to study those interactions during the feeding process. You can do it with plants pretty easily. <laughs> 
But with EPG, you might be able to, you know, get a, a happy medium in there and to study some of these processes and understand a little bit more about how pathogens are inoculated, maybe how to prevent inoculation. If you could understand the precise moment um, when inoculation occurs within like seconds, um, there may be something useful that could be exploited. And I'd love to see other people learn this technique and exploit it. Uh, for as much as, as we could get out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I thought this was a really neat paper. I want to thank you for doing such great research on mosquitoes and starting to tackle mosquito-borne viruses and how <laughs> we can, uh, you know, at least develop some more techniques to better understand it so that we can tackle this, this global issue. And so uh, thank you for that. And, you know, I really appreciate your time with me today. It's been fun. It's good to see you again. And, um, I'm so glad that you're doing this. Um, there's lots of people who are like stuck in their homes or I'm all by myself in my, my little office. I'm practicing social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I got mine here too, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think it's really important to stay connected with your colleagues. And so- Yeah, absolutely. I do appreciate it. <laughs>